So Father, we've come to, to your word now. We thank you that we've gotten to sing the truth of the gospel, that you are our salvation. And we thank you that we've been able to sing that you will hold us fast. Jesus, you hold us fast. When, our, when we're tempted, when our faith would fail, you hold us fast. Thank you for the reminder that you save and you keep us, Father God, through the power of your spirit. We pray today, Lord, that you would cause our affection to rise for Christ as we see the gap that he has bridged between your holiness and our sinfulness. May we, may we make much of him today. Help me to do that. We thank you for your word. We give ourselves now to understanding it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible, open with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We've been studying the life of David. We've seen truths about the kind of king that God raises up for himself, the kind of person that he delights to exercise his authority through. We've seen things like that God chooses those whom he gives authority to based upon what he sees in their heart, not based upon their outward appearance, right? Not on their intellect or charmingness, but, but on their heart. What does he find when he looks at the heart of a person? It's so important. We've seen that he trains his leaders through trial, through difficulty. And so that's an expectation that as we we're given authority by God, we can also expect that he'll train us for that authority through trial because it humbles us and it roots out the, the thing that, that power so often does to corrupt us. And so, you know, we've seen that in David's life. And each week as we come to these different snapshot moments from David's life, I find myself thinking, if I were David and I were, you know, 100 years old and sitting and looking back over the course of my life and someone were telling this story, what would I think about that moment? What would I want to impart to them about that moment? Oh, I remember when that happened and this was the most important thing that I took from that moment. Like, understand that this is what I learned in this moment. When we come today to a moment which is a challenging one for David and it'll be challenging for us. We'll find that David responds to God's work initially with anger because he's confused, I think, to a degree about what God has done. Uh, let's read it together. Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 through 15. And then we'll dive into it and try and explain it, unpack it a bit. So read with me. Second Samuel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. 
And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So in order to understand this, my guess is when you read the story, if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, you might read it and go, what in, on earth is going on here? Right? Like this is a foreign concept, a God like this. And this seems unfair perhaps. And David even responds with a sense of like, God, is this fair that you've done this to Uzzah? My guess is even if you're familiar with the story, you might look at it and go, I'm not sure what to, what to make of this. And there's a number of things as I read it. There were some names and some locations and some places and some things referenced like cherubim that might not make sense to you. So I want to give you a little bit of background. We got to get a little bit of caught up in the story of David's life. And then I need to catch you up a little bit on some of the background of this thing called the ark in order for what took place in this story to make sense to us. So can we do that? Is that good? So let's get a little bit of background and then we'll talk pretty about some, well, simple is not the right word for it, but pretty straightforwardly about a few things, right? So first thing we need to remember is, remember where we left off in David's story last week was that David had become king over Judah, but not the northern part of the kingdom of Israel. So he was, had a partial fulfillment of God's promise to him to become king. Now in chapter five, right before this, David finally becomes king of the whole nation. So now he is the king of the entire country and he's gonna begin his rule by doing this, by bringing the ark of God out of a town called Baal Judah or another name for it is Kiriath Jerem. And he's gonna bring it to about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem and he's gonna bring it down into Jerusalem. Now that may seem insignificant, but it's actually very significant. And the reason is this is that David is beginning his reign as king with a statement about the worship of God and its importance, right? So you notice that if you read through the story of David's life, there's no coronation ceremony. There's no moment where David gathers and everybody celebrates, David's king. He's finally gotten the fulfillment of God's promise. He doesn't throw himself a party. He throws God a party, so to speak. The first act that David is going to do, or among the first acts that David is going to do as king, is he's going to establish Jerusalem as the city where his government is going to be centered. And the most important part of centering his government there is that he is going to center the worship of God and God's people there in Jerusalem. Now, you may be somewhat familiar that Jerusalem is considered a holy city by a couple of different religions, yes, in our day and age. One of the reasons it's considered holy is because of what's taking place in this exact chapter. This is where Jerusalem goes from being a city of folks that are called the Jebusites and they're conquered by the nation of Israel to now becoming the city where David establishes his government and it becomes the center of the nation of Israel, it becomes the capital, becomes the center of their worship and the temple will eventually be built there. So you're seeing the beginning of the importance of the city of Jerusalem for world history, essentially. That's what's taking place here. But the most important thing to recognize is David does a good thing, right? David, instead of establishing his throne by celebrating himself, he celebrates who? He celebrates God. He says, my people are gonna worship God and we're gonna worship God. Now, the reason that getting the ark and taking it out of kiriath Jerem and bringing it into Jerusalem is so important is because you need to understand a little bit of the history of the ark. 
In uh, Exodus chapter 25, God had been giving uh, a description of how he wanted his people to build what he called a tabernacle for himself. It was a place where they would worship him. And it was going to have an outer court and then it was going to have an inner court and a holy of holies, a place where God's presence was actually going to dwell among his people. And only a high priest could go into that holy of holies once a year and sacrifices had to be made. There's a whole long description of what it looks like to engage God in the tabernacle. And as a part of those instructions in Exodus chapter 25, God tells Moses to make an ark. And he gives a very specific description of what the ark is supposed to look like. Two cubits wide by one and a half cubits in breadth. A cubit is 18 inches. Y'all wanted to get that information today, I know. Uh, cubit and a half high. It's going to have poles, be overlaid with gold. And on top, there is to be these two angelic cherubim, which are to essentially uh, make up the edges of what he calls the mercy seat. And the most important thing is that as God gives prescription for this to Moses, he says, Moses, I will dwell, I will put my presence in between the cherubim on the mercy seat, and I will speak to you there. So for the people of God, the ark becomes the place where God's presence dwells and meets with them. Moses and then later the high priest. And so to enter into God's presence was not something to be done lightly. So David is bringing the ark back to or into Jerusalem. Why? Because it represents God's presence. And they're saying we want God's presence among us. And in the midst of bringing that ark, and now here's the other thing you need to understand. There were specific instructions for how the ark was to be transported, how it was to be carried. It was to have two poles made of acacia wood overlaid with gold and they were to only be carried not just by Levites who is the priestly family or the priestly tribe of the nation of of Israel, not just by Levites but, but by sons of a particular family, the family of Kohath. Only his sons were ever to carry the ark and no one else. And when they carried it, they were to carry it in the poles so that they wouldn't touch the ark At no time were they to ever touch the ark, only the poles. In fact, Exodus 25 says the poles should not be removed from the ark. Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7 give great descriptions for how it was to be carried and transported from one place to the next. We notice that the ark is being carried how in this story? On a a brand new cart. They think they're doing really good. We're going to put on a brand new cart. In other words, they hadn't paid attention to what God's word said about how a holy God is to be approached. And at the end of the day, I think if you ask David at 100 years old, looking back over the course of his life, and you said, David, what what would you tell us this story was about? I think he would say this, a holy God can only be approached in a holy way. A holy God can only be approached in a holy way, not in any way you want to. See, the thing that seems unfair to us, I think about this story, at least if I search my heart and say, why does this seem unfair to me? It's because Uzzah had great intentions, right? He just didn't want the ark to hit the ground. That seems honorable, right? That seems, and, and they're worshiping passionately. That's the other thing. I was like, oh man, they are passionate about the worship of God. These people have great intentions and they're passionate. And what God is saying to us and to them is that all the best intentions in the world don't mean you can approach me in any way that you want. Lack of knowledge is no excuse for approaching me in any way you want. Now, lack of knowledge is a little bit iffy because Uzzah should have known, and so should David, and David should have known. Some commentators will even say, make no mistake, David killed Uzzah because David had not told him what the law said. 
whether Uzzah should have known or not, I think he probably should have, but lack of knowledge, best intentions, passionate, emotional worship, none of them allow us to approach a holy God. There's a great story in 1 Samuel chapter 6 about the ark. The, at one point, the ark had been, the reason it's in kiriath Jerem is because the Philistines had captured the ark in battle at one point. The Philistines are the, uh, a nation that's the enemies of uh, Israel. And so they'd captured it and they'd taken it in and they'd put it in the temple of their God uh, and thinking that was a good idea. And the, the funny part of the story is that Dagon, their God, he keeps falling over in front of the ark, like this statue. He just keeps falling over and they keep lifting him up. And of course, the irony is you read that strange story, if you have to pick up your God, he's not much of a God. So they have to keep picking him up, picking him up. And as if God is going like, you're not getting it, the last time he finally falls over, it's just a, it's a statue, right? That keeps falling over. He just, they show up and God has cut the head and the hands off the statue. Just to say, look, your God is not a God. So the Philistines' response is, we've got to get the ark out of here. And so they take it to the border of Israel. They put it on a cart of oxen. So the Philistines transported it by oxen and a cart. The Israelites should have known better than to transport it this way. They put it on there and they just, they back away from it and they go, we'll just see where it goes. And they just let it go and they do this whole thing. If it goes to the left and God is like, then if this was God who did all this. If it goes to the right, then it was a total coincidence, right? So the ark goes to the left and it ends up in this town, Kiriath Jerem, and the people are not exactly sure what to do with it. So they, they put it there and Saul doesn't do anything about it being there. And, and uh, David, now his first act is gonna be to take that ark and to bring it into Jerusalem. So the ark represents the presence of God. And what we're to learn is that you don't approach a holy God in any way you want, regardless of how great your intentions are. So here's what we need to do then, I think, to understand and to really grasp the content of this story. Right? Notice that the second time as David is bringing the ark in, now it's being carried on the poles. It says they were bearing the ark. Right? And David is dancing with great passion. It even says that he was wearing a linen ephod, which was, that's, that's a reference back to Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 7, where the priests are told that they're to wear linen garments. So David is actually now listening to the word of God and he said, oh, this is how it's been prescribed that we would come. They go six steps and then what do they do? They sacrifice animals because you can't approach a holy God without the shedding of blood. That's gonna become very important for us here in a minute. A holy God cannot be approached. Atonement cannot be made for the sins of people without the shedding of blood. And those animals stand as a placeholder for us. So here's what we, we're, I want to do. We need to understand the gap between a holy God and the sinfulness of sin. And so let's just ponder that a little bit today. Let's ponder the holiness of God and let's ponder the sinfulness of sin so that we might marvel at Christ who has bridged the gap between those things. My whole goal for you and I today is that our affections would be raised for Christ because we would see how great he is. You and I need to understand that the gap that Christ bridged between a holy God and sinful humanity was not the breadth of the longest bridge on earth. It wasn't the breadth of the earth. It was the breadth of universe after universe after universe. The distance between you and I and a holy God is far greater than we fathom. So let's look at the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man so we might understand exactly what's taking place here. 
and why Uzzah was struck down for approaching a holy God in a way that he had not deemed appropriate. So when we think about the holiness of God, and perhaps we ask this question, well, how, how holy is God, right? We think about two things when we use this definition of when we think about holiness. We think about that he is set apart and that he is moral perfection. That's usually the two components of the definition of the holiness of God. He is set apart, unique, unlike anything else, and he is, is, not, not he obtains or has, he is moral perfection, moral purity. So think with me about this then. When we say he is set apart, let's think about that first part of that part of the holiness of God first. When we say he is set apart, we mean that God created all things but remains separate from all that he has created. He is not what he created but maintains distinctness from it. That may seem very insignificant, but it's incredibly important because religion after religion makes the mistake of thinking that God and his creation are one and God, no, make no mistake about it, has caused his image to be born by people. He's placed his image in you. He's put his fingerprints on the mountains, the trees, the grass, the sky. His, his marks are all over it, but he is not what he created. Nothing that God has created is equivalent to him. He is set apart from them. He is unique and above and distinct from them. The second thing that we think about when we think about that God is set apart is that he is uncreated, he has no beginning, and his existence is different in quality than our existence. It is different. It is a qualitatively different kind of existence. When we think about the existence of God and his nature, we don't just think about the things that we have, like knowledge, and extrapolate them out to their greatest degree. We understand that when we talk about power, we don't think about the power and authority we have and just extrapolate them out to their greatest degree. When we're thinking about the power of God, the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the goodness of God, all things which we reflect, he is not a mere extrapolation to the nth degree of those things that we possess. He possesses them in a way that is infinitely different than how we possess them. He is far beyond and above. You and I cannot begin to comprehend what we mean when we say God is good. The most basic of statements, yes? And as you've said it, you've, you've not begun to comprehend what that actually means. He exists qualitatively different than we exist. He is timeless. And when we say timeless, we don't mean that he is like a timeless watch that is still in style 50 years after it was made. When we say he is timeless, we mean that he literally exists outside of time and time has no impact or effect upon him. You've been looking in the mirror lately, right, and noticing the wrinkles coming on, the hairs going away, right? I mean, how many times have you looked in the mirror and been, man, Actually, we had an assignment here at work where we did a little um, team-building exercise and they made us all produce high school photos of ourselves Right, it was 25 years ago for me, uh, graduating class in 95, right? And I, put it, I remember thinking, yeah, that looks like me still. And no one else could recognize who I was. <laughs> they were like, I don't know who that is. And you know what? I did that for everybody else too. I was like, I don't know who that is. Who is that? Like, we are changing constantly, right? And that's physical change. That's not even think about how much we change day to day. Uh, and hopefully in growth towards Christ, we change, Right? God is unchanging because he doesn't need to grow in perfection or goodness. And he doesn't ever shrink back from anything that he is in perfection. He is unchanging. If God had a mirror and looked in it, which he doesn't, 
But if he did, he would never see a changing face. He would never go, oh, there's a new whisker, a new, new white whisker there. He is unchanging. He is timeless. He is incapable of error. What must that be like? How set apart is our God from us that he's incapable of error? He never says anything, does anything, or thinks anything that is in any way errant. He doesn't lack any knowledge. He never learns anything. He never sits down and goes, I didn't know that. He is without error. He possesses all knowledge and possesses all power. And not only does he possess all power, and again, we're on the theme of how is he set apart from us? Are we beginning to get the, get the idea? Not only does he possess all power, all that he possesses, he possesses completely. In other words, not in part, but in full. All that he possesses, he possesses completely and shares with his creation those things he possesses as he determines right to do so. And when he shares them, he does not relinquish any part of what he shares. So let's think about his power for a moment as a good demonstration. If I possess power and I give that power to someone else, I no longer have it. They now have it, correct? I've given them the authority. I don't possess that authority. It's theirs now. When God shares his power with us, and he does so graciously share power and knowledge and understanding, he shares these things with us. When he shares his power with you, he has not relinquished in any way any part of that power. It's still his. And yet he has has graciously given it to you. He is set apart. He's not like us. He is not like us. He is more beautiful than any living thing. The most stunning vista you have ever seen does not begin to compare to the beauty of God. When you and I see him face to face one day, he will be so stunningly, shockingly beautiful that we will think all the most beautiful things we have ever seen in all the earth have not begun to do justice to the beauty of God. His ways cannot be fully known. Only what he reveals of himself may be known by created beings. Think about this. If someone wants to investigate your background and know things about you, are there ways that they can find them out about you, whether you want them to or not? Yeah, absolutely. People can know us. They can find things out about us. All that we know about God, all that we know about God is only what he has chosen to reveal to us about himself. Anything that he decides not to reveal, we don't know and we'll never know. And it doesn't matter how many books we could read or how long we could ponder and think. The greatest philosopher in the world will never begin to comprehend anything about God than what he has already chosen to reveal about himself to humanity. He is not like us. He is set apart from us. His mind is unsearchable. That's what Romans 11 tells us. Verse 33. His mind is unsearchable. His thoughts cannot be known or scrutinized. You know how when you hear an argument or you read a book and you're thinking about the argument that book is making and you're, you're assessing it. You're scrutinizing the argument. You're saying, is this logical? Is it valid? Are the premises it's based upon good? Is, that, is, that, is this a correct line of thought? Right? You should do that every Sunday, by the way, when you come here. You should be thinking, is he, is he telling me, is this correct according to the word of God? And you're scrutinizing it, 
right? That's good. That's good for us to do. God's thoughts cannot be scrutinized. They can't be judged. He doesn't ask for counsel from anyone else. And he's the only one who's like that. Now, last part of him being set apart. This, this always astonishes me. There are beings, angelic beings, who exist for the sole purpose, for no other reason than to dwell before his throne constantly and declare his holiness. To declare in front of him and before him, you are set apart. You are unlike anyone else. You are holy. That's what they do all day, every day, for all eternity. That's why they exist. And as they do it, he is so holy and pure and set apart that they cover their eyes and dare not look at him while they do the very thing they were created to do. To declare his holiness. God is not like us. Now, the second aspect of God's holiness is not just that he's set apart. It's that he is moral perfection. So think with me about that for a minute. He dwells in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 says. He dwells in unapproachable light. What does, Timothy, what does Paul mean when he says that to Timothy? He means that, that God, as you were to approach him, dwells in such moral perfection that he, is, he has light radiating from his presence because of his purity that becomes unapproachable. You cannot enter into this light lest it consume you. And then he goes on to say, not, not Paul, but the scriptures go on to say, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, thinking about the moral perfection of God, his purity is a consuming purity. It burns up all that is not what it is. In other words, anything that comes into the presence of God that is not moral perfection is not condoned, it is consumed by the perfection of God. That's why Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. The author of Hebrews is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter four, verse four. It's, our God is a consuming fire. He is the only being who may not be judged he answers to no one and depends on no one, and he needs no counsel. This is the tip of the iceberg of what we mean when we say that God is holy. Now it begins to make a little more sense why Uzzah couldn't just grab the edge of the ark and be fine. God's holiness is a, is a fixed point, right? Um, I, I recently watched this documentary called Free Solo. Has anybody seen it? About, about this uh, rock climber named Alex Hunold. I think that's how you say his last name, Alex Hunold. And he doesn't just climb things. He likes to climb them without any ropes. All right? If you ask me, that's stupid. But this is what Alex likes to do. And for rock climbers, one of, the great ta one of the great feats of rock climbing is apparently El Capitan, which is a monolith, uh, which is a couple, I think a couple thousand feet high in Yosemite National Park. And I've been there. It is absolutely a stunning piece. And if you stand at the base of El Capitan, you can't, it's so big, you can't see the rock climbers on it unless you have binoculars. You see these little dots that look like ants. The wall is so big that they're climbing that you have to, from only like 100 yards from the base of the thing, you have to have binoculars to see them when they're up there. Most climbers climb with ropes and they sleep partway up. They like, you know, the craziness that you've seen where they hook themselves into like a hanging bed. That's crazy enough, right? So Alex's goal was to free solo climb El Capitan. 
Only one who's ever done it. No one's ever done it. My wife and I are watching this. We're literally, we're holding hands because we're cute like that. We like to cuddle on the couch and we're still very much in love. And our hands are sweating. Like at some point we're both like, why are you sweating? Why are you sweating? What's going on? It's like, I don't know. We're nervous for Alex. He's going to. And at one point in the documentary, this is what he said. He said, he said, if I fall off of this, I will die. Like there's, it's not a question of maybe, right? And what he's saying really is this, is he recognizes that his best intentions, like I really want to climb you. I've got the best of intentions. Or I'm really passionate about climbing you, right? All his best intentions will not matter because El Capitan is El Capitan. And he gets a thousand feet up and falls. It doesn't matter how great his intentions were. You can't just approach El Capitan any way you want to approach El Capitan. If you fall, you'll die. God's holiness is something like that. It's a fixed point. It doesn't matter what your intentions are. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. It doesn't even matter if you just happen to lack knowledge about how, to, how God has said to approach him. It only matters that God is holy and you and I are not. To approach a holy God in an unholy way is to be consumed. Let's think for a minute what we mean when we say, how sinful is sin? So the first question is, how holy is God? We could probably just stop there and go, yeah, that's remarkable. But if we want to be even further enthralled by the work of Christ, let's think about how sinful sin is. Because this is not something we think about a lot. My guess is most of you wouldn't object to the holiness stuff about God. But that somewhere in your heart perhaps you might reject this idea how sinful sin is in us. But let's think about it for a moment. Here's what we know. Sin is not a shortcoming in our thinking and emotions that can be counseled or educated away. Sin is not simply a lack of education or a lack of emotional well-being and that if you just get the right counsel, then you'll eventually be able to overcome that shortcoming. That's not what sin is. Sin is a spiritual reality that has taken up residence in human beings and corrupts every person and every part of every person. Get that. Sin is a spiritual reality that corrupts every person and every part of every person. Every part of every person. Affections, mind, and will are grievously impacted by sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. I won't take the time to read it today, but if you want a great theology of sin, just start in Romans chapter 1 and read through Romans chapter 5. And just see how deadly sin is. And then keep reading because it's good news after that. Keep reading. Don't stop. The smallest amount. Oh, so therefore, because that's what sin is, therefore sin cannot be reformed. It can only be destroyed. Sin cannot be reformed. It can only be destroyed. You cannot just take sinful desire and say, I'll reshape that and reorient it in a right and better way. That's not the way sin works. You don't fight your sin by trying to reform it. You have to fight sin by killing it. There is no other option. Sin may not be reformed. It may only be destroyed. It may only be killed. The smallest amount of sin is destructive beyond our imagination. 
so that we cannot moderate sin and imagine we will be okay. That's Romans chapter one. You cannot simply hope, I'll keep my sin in moderation, right? We, we always talk about moderation. Moderation and diet's a good thing, right? Everything in moderation makes total sense. That does not work when it comes to sin. You cannot simply say, well, I'll just moderate it. I'll just, as long as I only sin this much, right? Because that's not the way sin works because the smallest amount of it is so destructive that to attempt to moderate it is to invite destruction into your life. Not only that, but because sin and guilt are inherited, no one can escape it. No one gets out of it, right? We said sin corrupts every person and it corrupts every part of every person. Romans 5 tells us this, right? Romans 3 tells us this, that, there is, that sin is inherited. And because it's inherited and guilt that comes with sin is inherited, you cannot escape it. No one can. The next thing that we see is that sin can never be satisfied through indulgence. Sin can never be satisfied through indulgence. It will only grow hungrier. In other words, you can't hope to say, well, I'll feed my sin up to this point and then my sin will grow satisfied. It won't want any more food. Never works that way. Sin is like fire. If you give fire a choice of having more, to burn more up, is it gonna burn more up? If you give it fuel, it will never, fire never says, that's enough, I'm good. It keeps burning and keeps burning and keeps burning as long as it's given fuel. And sin is just like that. You can never satisfy your sin. Friends, this is a big deal for us to get this because I think some of us operate and we just keep walking down certain pathways with sin and we think eventually I won't want to do this anymore. And eventually the destructive power of the sin in my life will let go. You have to kill sin. It is never going to be satisfied with the destruction it has already wreaked. It will only wreak more and continue to move forward. Sin can hide itself in the heart. This is why one of the reasons sin is so dangerous. It can hide itself in the heart because the heart is deceitful above all things, according to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. And if the heart is deceitful above all things, then it means sin has a great hiding spot. Sin hates all that God is so that there is no part of God which we might relate to with which sin would be content. It always makes war against God. In other words, sin is never happy for you to relate. It's like, oh, that part of God for them to love and adore and cherish, that's fine. I can let that go. I won't worry about that. Sin hates God. The scriptural word that gets used on him is enmity, right? It just means hate, absolute hate. Sin hates all that God is. And there is no part of God that sin in us looks at and goes, that's fine. That's fine for them to love that about him, but I'll just make sure they don't love this about him or that I keep this hidden. Sin hates all that God is and wants to create hatred in God in you. That's the way sin operates. If you wonder why your affections feel so light towards God when you come to corporate worship, perhaps it's because you've been indulging sin all week long and sin hates God. And it does not delight for you to come and worship him. And you find your faculties of worship and love for him diminished as you come because of that indulgence. Because it weakens and thwarts your love for God. That's what it does. It delights to do it. Now listen. Without a right theology of sin, right? This is all very depressing, right? Without a right theology of sin, 
you cannot love Jesus because you will not see what he's truly done. Without a right theology of the holiness of God, you can't love Jesus because you won't see what he's done. My friends, listen. A weak theology of sin turns the gospel into just moralism and therapy, right? Just, just be affirmed that God loves you and then you're gonna get your, the best version of yourself by believing that he loves you. And God does love you and he does actually lead us to the best version of life. There's no doubt about it. That, that's a true reality. But sometimes we wanna get there without facing the reality of sin. And my friends, let me just tell you, that's, that, that only produces a weak a weak love for Jesus. Strong love for Jesus is produced when we understand how great a chasm was bridged by his cross. If you want to know what it's like to be loved, you need a right theology of the holiness of God and a right theology of, of the sinfulness of sin. How absolutely abhorrent and wicked it is and how destructive it is. And as you grasp those things, then the good news is you're not left in despair. You're not left in despair. Because like we said with Romans, keep reading. And the truth that comes to us, the truth that comes to us is that the Son of God, the Holy Son of God is the only one who can make us able to approach a holy God. The sinless, pure, holy Son of God grants us the holiness that is required to approach the holiness of God without being consumed. And so we find things in the scripture like in Hebrews which says, therefore, we can boldly approach the throne of God. We find in Ephesians chapter two, he himself is our peace who has made it possible for us to come to God. And he has declared peace, peace with God so that the wrath of God poured out on all that is unholy does not consume us because Christ, how magnificent is he? How stunningly magnificent is he. No one can do what he can do.